When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stephen Polaz, who spent seven years as the Bank of Canada governor, including the critical first months of the pandemic, has just released his new book called The Next Age of Uncertainty, How the World Can Adapt to a Riskier Future. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, Polaz, now a special advisor at the law firm Osler, Hoskin, and Harcourt, explains why he thinks the world is headed into an era of greater volatility and why the politicians who lead us may be ill-equipped to confront the challenges that lie ahead. He identified five tectonic forces, an aging population, technological progress, rising inequality, rising debt, and climate change that are going to interact under the surface and create new crises for at least a decade. We talked about how this will work, about the energy transition, inflation. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Stephen Polaz, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Gabe. Well, you have a new book out, The Next Age of Uncertainty, not to be confused with The Age of Uncertainty, which is a famous text from the 1970s by John Kenneth Galbraith. Yeah. The thrust of your book, as I understand it, is just very simply, we're headed into a period of extreme uncertainty in the economy and other matters, and we don't really have the policy tools to deal with it. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, that is fair. It's actually named as it is because the last time we had this much force acting in the background to create volatility was in the 1970s. That was why Galbraith wrote his book. Importantly, it's not just we're entering a new situation. It's the forces that I identified are actually trending at this time. And for the next maybe 10 years, they will get progressively bigger And so we're probably on a rising trend of volatility, not just a higher volatility. And I think all you have to do is look at what's happening in Ottawa right now or go back to some of the critiques of various pandemic responses to understand where you're coming from. And in the book, you do mention certain policy solutions that we've crafted. You said the carbon tax is elegant, and there are other policies that you praise. But my sense is you think our political system is broken and just getting worse. Well, you you you, you put it down in, in such a short form. Uh, but what I what I am arguing basically that the economic trends that I've pointed to are things that people take personally, such as rising inequality, rising income inequality, or wealth inequality. Obviously, you take that very personally. Uh, technological change. You know, if you're going to lose your job because of uh, advances in technology. You could struggle to get back into the other part of the economy that's growing. So you take it personally. These things are things that are trend lines, which have political implications because people look to their government for solutions or to protect them from these things. At a time when it seems like we're becoming more and more polarized in politics, you know, so when, when as politics gets more polarized, and we've seen this in past episodes of major technological change, such as in the 1800s, the early 1900s, 
These are periods where you get rising income inequality and more tension among people. You know, we're being left out or we're being left behind. And so that gives rise to these political tensions. And polarization in politics doesn't bring you to quick solutions, does it? It, it, in fact, it makes it really hard to reach compromises, and compromises are really important in policymaking. So, for instance, we would have tensions between federal and provincial politics or international tensions, you know, something that affects us versus the affects the United States. So I'm not optimistic that politics will be able to solve all these problems for us, the rising volatility I'm talking about with the implication that there will be residual volatility that's rising even after the best efforts from policymakers. And that residual will fall on us, individuals, families, and their companies. Right. And to add on to this, you lay out five tectonic forces affecting the economy, population aging, technology, growing inequality, rising debt, and climate change. Yeah. And they're all negative, maybe with the exception of technology. Well, technology is pretty positive. It's the thing that gives us economic progress through the ages. So I identify it as the one out of one out of the five, which is positive. Of course, as it un- unrolls, it has consequences for people. So at the time, you might think, "Gosh, this is negative for me," but it's almost inevitably positive overall, and especially given enough time. Yeah. One of your conclusions, I gather, is that the political situation may limit government's ability to deal with all this, but that you do see business leaders leading us out of this. I do. What I I think, of course, politics uh, is the hardest job in the world. This is not may turn this into a slag against politicians. It's just the hardest job in the world. And social media makes every voice sound like a large uh, number of people, right? It just it just even makes the polarization more dramatic, consensus elusive, as I argued before. But even if they do their best, there are limitations to what policymakers can do. Take the fiscal side, uh, you know, where you might rely on, as we did during the pandemic, we relied mainly on fiscal policy to smooth out that incredible fluctuation in the economy. And it turned out pretty good compared to where it could have gone. But that requires fiscal capacity. And, and one of the forces you mentioned was population aging. Well, that's another major drag on the fiscal system that's coming our way as folks like me, the baby boomers, run out through the workforce and go into retirement and aging. So we, we, we leave the pandemic with a huge legacy of debt, plus this other draw on our fiscal capacity coming our way. So am I confident that we'll have all, all the unlimited capacity we need to deal with volatility? Well, no. And monetary policy, similarly, interest rates are quite low. They will go back to some sort of a more normal level over time, but that'll still be a lower level than we've been used to historically. And there, too, less room to maneuver. So companies will be left, you know, companies and their employees will face this volatility together. The volatility I'm talking about, you know, fluctuations in the economy and jobs and prices and interest rates, those things matter just as much to companies as they do to individuals. And so uh, if a company is facing that volatility and they see their employees facing that volatility and there's a shortage of workers because of the population aging, isn't that look like an opportunity for a company? Uh, That is the opportunity to look for ways to help employees manage that risk and therefore make working there a more attractive, you know, a a employee retention strategy would include risk management. 
companies themselves will have to manage higher levels of risk just to make a profit or, you know, to survive uh, and actually turn into true risk managers as opposed to just hoping risks don't happen. And so there will be quite a different, I think, series of adaptations between firms and uh, households through this. But underneath that, I see the power shifting from employer to employee. And that, that judgment line comes from employers, stakeholders, which is mainly shareholders, but also their employees. You know, the shareholders today will dump your stock if you don't do the right thing around climate change. And I think if they see a company that can't retain the right level of resourcing because they're not practicing, you know, good risk mitigation strategies for their employees, will not succeed and therefore their stock will suffer too for that same mechanism. Uh, we'll get that same kind of shift in power towards the employee. There's a lot to unpack in that answer. You point out in the book that we're living at the tail end of an incredible, anomalous event in world history that created enormous economic growth, which was that the rate of world population growth peaked in the mid-1960s at 2%, and now it's tapering off. And so economic growth can be expected to level off. How much does that define our circumstances, our politics, and how much do you expect our awareness of that to grow? Yeah, it's a tricky question. Uh, but uh, first of all, the population aging uh, that we refer to is a global phenomenon. So the entire global population picked up speed after World War II. And as you say, peaked around uh, 20 years later, say roughly in the, in the mid-60s. And from then, then we had this enormous pickup in, in labor force participation. And so we basically have 50 years of economic growth, which is anomalous because of that post-war baby boom. Of course, anything that lasted 50 years sounds normal to, to us, but that's our, that's our whole lifetime. Uh, but what we need to understand is that bulge is quite abnormal. And so now we're going back to a more sedate uh, growth in population. In fact, population growth will keep slowing down from now till it stops, you know, say in 2100 or thereabouts. And so that's the most important ingredient in economic growth. Therefore, economic growth will also be slowing. The only way for us to cause it to stay up would be to have more innovation and have more productivity growth. Okay, so we don't usually predict that in advance. We knew all the fourth industrial revolution was going to help, but it's all always going to be a temporary boost in growth. So slower growth, that puts a constraint on everything. But what can an individual country do, such as Canada? That is to have a very enlightened immigration policy, which I believe we do. And what that does is it helps put a floor underneath our economic growth of at least 1%, probably a little above 1%, just from population growth due to immigration. Every country can't do that, of course, because it's a zero-sum game. My sense is that this realization is going to set in elsewhere in the world, and you're going to see more enlightened immigration policies around the world as we move forward. This will be almost a competition for labor force growth coming from other countries. The net result is going to be a growing shortage of workers as we move forward. And so the scramble will be between retaining the ones you have so you don't lose them to some competitor and deploying the right kind of technology to make sure they're as productive as possible. Yeah, it sounds like the whole politics around immigration are going to change in the sense that you think it's going to get much more competitive in the future. I think that's right. Um, more competitive, not just a matter of putting up a sign saying Canada will accept 400,000 or whatever 
per year. It's making sure we continue to strengthen the things that attract people. And of course, generally our way of life, but the big attractors are things like our universities. The really uh, great channel for immigration is students that get, uh, you know, aspire to something better, come to Canada to go to school, end up liking it here, and a certain percentage of them decide this is the place they want to stay. That's a fantastic channel for immigration because you're spending three or four years here in university really getting to know the place, right? And uh, and so, uh, you know, this, this, of course, would be the wrong era in which to uh, try to save money, uh, you know, in the education sector. I mean, that's, that's one of our biggest exports, high growth exports, is education services from our universities. And it also complements that immigration strategy. Right. I always forget that education is an export because it's a little bit difficult to conceptualize. Well, no, it's all about where the check comes from. If they're going to pay for their tuition, uh, that, that money's coming from outside Canada, and that makes it an export. Right. Let's talk about the pandemic recovery for a minute. In the book, you share a lot of details about what it was like to be the Bank of Canada governor way back in March 2020 through the first few months of this. How's the economy doing right now, and how's the recovery going? Well, the economy is doing really well. It did far better throughout than most economists thought it would, mainly because uh, we were in a very resilient state uh, when we were hit by COVID, with unemployment at a 40-year low and inflation exactly on target. I mean, that's as resilient a place as you can be. Fiscal situation was strong and so on. So that all worked out well, not just policies, but the banks jumped up and did things like mortgage deferrals and new lending to companies, both small companies and large companies. So uh, all hands were on deck and it worked out very well. Now, the it was as close as you could make it to simply stopping the clock and then restarting the clock. Now, bearing in mind, there's a layer of folks in the face-to-face businesses you know, hotels, restaurants, uh, you know, travel in general, gyms, entertainment, those kinds of things that, you know, continue to bear the brunt of the shutdowns and have borne it through. Uh, but apart from those those folks, the other 97% or so of the economy uh, got back on track almost, almost right away within three or four months and has actually been growing through the pandemic. So job creation in what I call the top part of the K, and these folks in the face-to-face are in the bottom part of the K. So this two-track economy is what we've seen. The K-shaped recovery. Yeah. So overall, it looks better than it does on the ground because overall, the extra growth we've received in the top part of the K is offsetting still the continued weakness in the bottom part of the K. And so we do have uh, now, of course, as we reopen, we discover, well, now there's a shortage of workers uh, because a lot of folks have transferred from the bottom part of the K to the top. And uh, we immigration levels fell off during the pandemic. So that takes some catching up. And I'm confident that is going to catch up this year. And so our recovery will be will be complete uh, very soon. That's all fine. That's on the real side. Uh, one of the consequences uh, that's, you know, to many degrees unforeseen is how much inflation has picked up through this. And that's, an, uh, that's of course, a, a downside. Uh, but, of course, the most important thing, in my view, is that we averted what could have been the Second Great Depression. That's, that's a pretty big success. 
Uh, we could have avoided any of these inflation pressures by having a, a depression, of course. And that would have been not about the right choice. Now, in the end, uh, we know that inflation is being overstated as it is now because of the way it's measured, because prices fell before they went back up, and that's not really being taken into account. Inflation will decelerate quite a lot, I think, this year for that reason alone. But in addition, all the evidence is starting to come in that companies are dealing with their supply chain issues. Uh, we saw Walmart's results, Canadian Tire's results. These are examples of companies that have figured out how to manage their supply chain issues. And there are some higher costs in the system, but we'll, 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 we'll get through those over time. So inflation, I'm not saying is not an issue because it still has potential to become a serious issue, but I think uh, the prospects are that we'll get a, a return back to, you know, that sort of two, around 2% or below 3% kind of range uh, in the next 12 months. So that's uh, that's all a pretty good story, considering we could have had the, the second Great Depression. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Uh, now, I'd spoken to you in November 2020, and at the time, we had talked about interest rates, and you said, they're going to go up, but they're not going to go up to 1970s levels. Mm-hmm. Are you still on that same page? Yeah, more or less. I mean, we're, we're, we're honestly, the, the real answer to that is to be humble and, we're, and to say we, we just don't know. Um, the economy is changing as we speak about it. Uh, we don't know if it is more sensitive to interest rate movements than it was before. My guess is that it may be because of the increase in debt that we've seen through this. So it means that any any interest rate move has a, a, a larger impact on cash flows, whether you're a household or a company. Um, and so that means it can have a different, uh, different impact. That's one thing. Uh, first stage, though, is kind of what we call normalization. You know, rates need to find their way to where they're no longer stimulating the economy. And frankly, we don't even know rough where that is. It's kind of expressed as a range as around, you know, sort of uh, 2 to 2.5%, we think might be the neutral range for interest rates. But there are lots of uh, times in history where it hasn't been like that and for various reasons. So I think it's one of these cases where you have to kind of feel your way. And um, a lot of folks think of this as a mechanical thing. Um, there's a very specific place you must go to become neutral and, and for inflation pressures to, to ease. And in fact, though, it's it's not an exact address. It's more like a neighborhood. And, you know, when you get back to your old neighborhood, you start to recognize it long before you get to the actual housing. And if you're in a, you're in a traffic jam, you say to the taxi, look, drop me here because I know I can walk from here. It's that sense of you'll know when you're in the, in the roughly the right place. Uh, to be to be candid, we we don't know if interest rates may need to go a little higher than that or stay short of that. I don't think anybody knows this. So I've characterized it as not stepping onto an escalator. It's more like you're walking up a flight of stairs and you stop every couple of steps to look around and make sure you know where you are and and getting comfortable, catching your breath, so to speak. And that's what data dependence kind of looks like. You've said already uh, the government support programs were critical to keeping the economy from avoiding a Great Depression. They also contributed to the rising debt that we see. And during this crisis, Canada, but in various countries, the amount of government support 
was way higher than what was used a decade ago during the financial crisis. What have we learned about stimulus or quantitative easing, whatever you want to call it, but these government programs that pump money into the economy to soften the blows of systemic market crises? Because my sense from reading the book was that you don't seem that worried about rising debt. And so I am wondering, what have we learned about these programs and how long have you felt that way? And do you expect the rest of your colleagues in the economics profession uh, to come around to your view? Well, let's begin with with debt. I mean, debt, higher debt, all other things equal, means that the economy is more fragile than before. Uh, it means it's more susceptible to shock. So if you have an economy with low debt, including governments, about households, firms, and governments have low debt, a shock comes along, whether it's COVID or something more normal, like just a, a recession. People can survive it better than if they're high, highly indebted. If they're highly indebted, you know, you lose your job for only three months or six months. You could lose your house. The company could have to close, et cetera. Debt is low. It's easier to manage. And so we take it as a given, therefore, that we're in a more fragile place than we were 10 years ago. So that's an important place to uh, to begin that. Given that, uh, we ask ourselves, well, first of all, we, we had really no alternative to finding ways to support the economy. The alternative being to have a very long, prolonged recession or perhaps a depression. Since prices were falling, you'd have deflation mixing up with debt. That's usually the two main ingredients of a depression. So we had all that. We averted all that, and that was worth doing. Now, afterwards, you have a legacy of debt. Of course you do. And I look at that, and I say, well, is that manageable? Well, we've managed levels of debt like that before, after World War II, for instance. And the sustainability criterion is only that governments manage to finance their debt at a rate of interest that's lower than the economic growth rate. And if they want to cement that, there are policies they can undertake to increase the economic growth rate without spending more money. Those would be things like eliminating red tape or things that stop productivity from happening, regulations or inefficient tax systems, which we've got lots of those. So the things you could do to raise economic growth by 0.2 or 0.4 or 0.5% every year from now to eternity and that would make that debt load even easier to carry. And that's the kind of thing that was happening to us in the 50s after World War II, but it was happening mainly from population growth. When we look forward to this time, it will not be from population growth. There'll be some because of immigration, maybe 1%. But the rest is, you know, kind of harder work. It doesn't mean, mean having the, uh, a grand announcement, a big spending program. It means rolling up your sleeves figuring out how to eliminate differences in regulations across provinces or it may mean investing more in childcare because that's a big supply creator. That's one which people think of as an expense. I think of it as an investment that will pay for itself like, like a bridge would. It's a very practical view. I want to ask you about climate change, which is another one of the tectonic forces you identify. And you say in the book, investor pressure may be the most effective tool in the end to reduce emissions. Yes. You know the critique of this view. It's called greenwashing. People say emissions have continued to rise even as a wave of companies have made commitments to going net zero. Given your view of everything you know about the way the world works, do you think Canada will reach net zero emissions by 2050? 
Uh, yes, I think I think there's a very good chance of doing this. But of course, I'd also think there are there are many different paths between here and 2050. And I think the point I'm trying to make in the book is there's two. One is that I think governments will struggle to lay out a very precise path from here to 2050 because of the consensus issues that you and I talked about earlier, that we're going to see a a true divergence of public view, and it's going to be hard for governments to just uh, lay down a mandate, say, this is how we're getting to 2050. It'll it'll give rise to a lot of polarization. And we see it across both internationally. We watched COP26, and, you know, let's remind ourselves that was the 26th COP. Okay, so this is not easy to drive these consensus forward. But if we inject realism into that conversation, which is to say, you know, we're going to need to rely to a lesser extent through time, but continue to rely upon a share of our energy coming from conventional sources for a very long time, possibly forever. But complementing that with big investments in carbon capture technology that allows us to reach net zero. So I emphasize the word net because net zero is not the same as zero, Uh, not even close. And so uh, we know that there's a place and that balance point uh, where there's enough carbon capture going on and Mother Nature is still doing her job of absorbing CO2. And we've controlled all the methane emissions, which are 80 times more important for global warming than CO2 emissions, okay, 80 times. So you fix the methane problem, you extend your potential trajectory to getting to net zero much farther out. Okay, That's a really important piece of info there. So all those things suggest to me there are a lot of things that we can do that are within our grasp now, and there will be other things that don't seem to be quite in our grasp today. It seem expensive or high tech, but in 10 years, they'll be everyday things. And so injecting that bit of reality into the conversation means you don't have to stop producing, for example, natural gas, which in relative terms is an extremely clean kind of source of energy. And surely when we're smart enough to to pair it with carbon capture, it'll be perfectly clean. Or developing a full hydrogen economy. You know, those are those are big path-breaking changes, cost a lot of money, takes a lot of risk to do. But but there will be uncertainty throughout all this because there will not be clarity from from governments. And as a result, I'm saying that the most important channel for getting this done will be the investor channel. That's how I reach that conclusion, through the process of elimination more than just saying it's, it is the most powerful channel. Now, as for greenwashing, that can only happen while reporting on these issues remains in its infancy, which it is today. So uh, as we adopt common frameworks for measuring, like the way we adopt GAAP. Accounting standards. Yes, accounting standards. There'll be there'll emerge global accounting standards for uh, ESG uh, measures, and uh, probably under the rubric of the TCFD standards, that's most likely. But there there may be ISO standards, etc. And and in the future, people will write their sustainability areas of their annual report based on that accounting, just the way they write about their uh, their financials based on GAAP. And they'll have a few measures of their own, which will be like the equivalent of non-GAAP measures that gives more color for their type of company. And that'll be okay, but it won't be to stop using the standardized measures. And so investors will be able to tell the difference between a company that's doing it right, albeit gradually, you know, taking its 20 years or whatever it needs to uh, get there, 
and other companies that are greenwashing. Now, that's the kind of world you need to imagine. It might take a few more years, of course, to get there, but we'll get there. And um, investors, I think, are smart enough not to oversimplify and just say, well, I'm just not going to hold any stock that has anything to do with conventional energy. They're instead be prepared, as we're seeing from pension plans and uh, other major investors, prepared to work with their investee companies to monitor their progress on ESG criteria and to, uh, you know, enforce a stronger accountability around it on behalf of shareholders. And by the way, not just your shareholders, because employees are showing the same kind of preferences. They would like to work for a company that they're proud of. And they want to see that ESG track record customers too. Well, today it's a little too easy to paint a company as either green or not green. You know, it's just like it's it's binary. That I think is not subtle enough, not even close to what we need to see. But I'm confident it will happen. And therefore, that with government putting in things like carbon pricing to reinforce those trends, uh, and uh, particularly at the consumer level, you know, that's what we call scope three emissions. I think we should be confident that we can get there. And in the end, I think Canada could be a leading exporter of energy for the world, uh, coupled with being a leader in carbon capture technology. That's a positive take on it. One thing I wanted to ask you about, it's only tangentially related in terms of some of the energy that comes out of Russia to Europe, but, you know, Russia gearing up for a potential invasion of Ukraine you don't dwell too much on geopolitics in the book, or you don't cite it as a primary sort of tectonic force. And I was wondering how you think about geopolitics. Are they just a consequence of these other forces? Yes. I mean, I, I, when, I, when I was writing the book, I had a lot of geopolitics in my mind. At the time, it wasn't about Russia and Ukraine. It was, you know, a little bit more about the anti-China sentiment that, that had emerged. I see that as uh, more a symptom of that underlying uh, angst that comes from usually the root of it is technological progress, uh, but it can be complemented by or even be seen to be instead of globalization. So uh, a lot of people look at say, well, I, I'm, you know, I, I got left out of the, the all that progress that we saw, say, in the 1990s or, or the 2000s. And they may blame globalization for their inability to progress, or maybe they lost their job and had to move to something that wasn't as good of a job, et cetera. Uh, I think at the bottom of that was actually technological progress, but we can debate that all throughout your show, but they kind of came together. Okay. So they, they, they came together and, the, and that idea of being left out, let's just leave it at that. I kind of left out. And so I think that that is what gives rise to the, the more populist, that combined with the, 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 the ease with which you can get attention with social media kind of gives you that po- emergence of populism. Um, and of course, not just in the United States, but in lots of places and a more readiness to be against the things. And I think that say, uh, you could say well, that's the sort of thing that would, uh, that kind of state of mind or that, uh, underlying concern or a feeling of uh, not being included could easily be the the economic explanation for this the, the trucker uh, business that we're going through at this stage those it's it's and just all oh, the mandates uh, about masking you know or, or about uh, vaccinations just kind of were a trigger when we when we look around the world there's there's always going to be uh, geopolitics it seems like it's kind of comes out of thin air 
because there are rivalries. And if uh, we know there are rivalries, and if the natural or the historic leader is taking a more inward focus, that gives the opportunity for other rivals to kind of step up and uh, try to do things more global in nature. What Ian Bremmer refers to as kind of the G zero world, right, where nobody's actually leading uh, per se or, or or standing up. So uh, that could be we all we've done is set a scene, and then whatever the trigger is, the trigger is. And you know, you mentioned uh, energy pricing. I mean, much of that is kind of our own design. Uh, but I think you know, go back to the question about climate change and the tra- energy transition. That energy transition literally does need to take a good 20 or 30 years to achieve. And during those 30 years, the global demand for energy will will still increase by like 50, 60 percent. And so all that is not going to suddenly just happen by, you know, switching to electricity. You somehow have to do a transition. That's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be risky. And, and when we overlay the uncertainty about what politicians will programs they will put in place to reinforce this or to help help us and encourage us to get there, that's just a whole lot of things for companies to have to deal with. And uh, so it adds to that next stage of uncertainty that I'm describing and, and of course, interacts in uh, very challenging ways with the other tectonic forces. It's a fascinating book. It's called The Next Age of Uncertainty, How the World Can Adapt to a Riskier Future. Stephen Polaz, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay, it's always a pleasure. Again, that was Stephen Polaz, former Bank of Canada governor, now an advisor at the law firm Osler, Hoskin & Harcourt, in addition to belonging to various corporate boards. Thank you for listening to Down to Business and supporting the show. Thank you to Bryce Hall for his executive production, including composing and performing the original music on Down to Business, and Noella Ovid for web support, and to the editors at The Financial Post. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.